Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are our top stories. Former President Trump wins in New Hampshire with Nikki Haley not yet ready to throw in the towel. What Trump said in his victory speech. How did voting in New Hampshire go for Democrats? Our reporter breaks down the Democratic primary in the Granite State. We take a look at what Trump's victory in the primary means and what's next for Nikki Haley and the race for Republican nomination. The Pentagon warns money for Ukraine has run out as a top Senate negotiator says there'll be no vote on aid this week. More on the push for a bipartisan deal. Israel's military has the southern city of Han Yunus in Gaza surrounded and talks to release remaining, remaining hostages are starting to pick back up. Boeing pauses operation and delivery of its 737 jets as more companies continue to lay off employees. We have details on the state of the economy. One of the finalists from NTD's sixth international figure painting competition explains how she creates her artwork and the attention to detail needed to take it to the next level. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome everyone. Today is Wednesday, January 24th. And isn't it remarkable how close the polls sometimes are in their predictions? Yeah, just off by a few points here in Trump's case. And there's just some really great sportsmanship by Nikki Haley in this one. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, that of course is topping the news this morning. Former President Trump wins the New Hampshire Republican primary, defeating candidate Nikki Haley. And on the Democratic side, President Biden wins the Granite State. Trump won by double digits and secured 11 delegates in the state compared to Haley's eight. Let's look at the results. GOP frontrunner Trump claiming about 54% of the vote with over 163,000 votes. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley has about 43% of the vote, totaling just under 130,000 votes. 91% of the votes have been counted. The former president touting the latest results, sounding confident about upcoming races, including a potential matchup with President Biden. That's as Haley is saying the race is not over yet. And today's White House correspondent Iris Tao was at Trump's watch party last night, attended by supporters like Vivek Ramaswamy and Carrie Lake, who told NTD why New Hampshire is a key victory. Another decisive victory for former President Trump right here in New Hampshire. This is a fantastic state. This is a great, great state. You know, we won New Hampshire. Three times now, three. In history, no Republican presidential candidate has ever won the first two states and then not go on to win the ultimate nomination in the party. And Trump is sounding confident about the upcoming races and a potential face-off with President Biden in November. We are going to win this. We have no choice. If we don't win, I think our country is finished. While Trump took aim at his now only rival left in the party, Nikki Haley, she failed badly. Now, he'd praised those who dropped out and endorsed him. And both Vivek Ramaswamy and Kerry Lake telling NTD that a victory in New Hampshire matters a lot. Now, if the exit poll and other numbers are to be believed, 
for the first time in history, we have more Democrats and independents voting in a GOP primary than actual Republicans. And so that means this is effectively a general election testing ground. And if he wins by a reasonable margin, that predicts a landslide in November. This is huge. This is the end of the road for Nikki Haley, and it's time for her to drop out. Nikki Haley, while acknowledging Trump's win, insisting that a race is not over. New Hampshire is first in the nation. It is not the last in the nation. And the next one is my sweet state of South Carolina. Nikki Haley is setting her sights on South Carolina, her home state, where she's already announcing campaign stops and planning to spend millions of dollars on advertisements. Meanwhile, Trump says he will win in both South Carolina and also Nevada, which is where the next race is coming up in just about two weeks. Reporting in Nashua, New Hampshire, Iris Tao, NTD News. And in the Democratic primary in New Hampshire, President Biden won about 51% of the vote via over 54,000 write-ins. Representative Dean Phillips came in at a distant second at about 20% of the vote, getting about 21,000 votes. 89% of the votes have been counted. About 15,000 write-ins have yet to be processed. And NTD's Chris Spears was at the primary election watch party for Congressman Phillips, a long-shot candidate who some say performed better than expected last night. Here's that report. President Biden won the Democratic primary here in New Hampshire. Phillips was pleased with the results. He was expecting to get about 20 percent, even though polls were saying that he would get in the single digits. So, yeah, he and his supporters were quite pleased with the results. Um, unfortunately, None of it mattered because the DNC itself sent a letter to the Democratic Party here in New Hampshire saying that the results here will be meaningless. Um, that's basically over a conflict surrounding the, where the first primary in the country should be held. Um, Dean Phillips commented on the results of the race. Here's what he had to say. Congratulations to President Biden, who won absolutely won tonight but by no means in a way that a strong incumbent president should, but I respect him, he won. We're gonna go to South Carolina, then we're gonna go to Michigan, then we're gonna go to 47 other states, and I'm gonna see you all around. And as Dean Phillips just said, South Carolina is the next state in the Democratic primary. There, Joe Biden is polling at about 69%, Phillips at about 5%. Nationally, the polling looks similar with Joe Biden, roughly around 60% or so. Um, unless something dramatic changes in the next few months, which it could, because it's 2024, Joe Biden will probably be the nominee for the Democratic Party in November. And for more analysis of the New Hampshire primary, we hear from Raven Harrison, a political strategist and former congressional candidate. Raven, thanks for getting up bright and early to be here with us today. Good morning. Glad to be here. I want to touch on something that Ramaswamy, we heard him just say that New Hampshire has an interesting makeup of voters that participate in the Republican primary process with more a moderate electorate and a lot of independence in the mix here. With Trump's rock solid support there, is he a shoe in for the nomination? He is, and I'll tell you why. It was an interesting uh, dynamic. Vivek is correct. They have what's called an open uh, primary there, which means uh, people can switch party affiliations. So they had a lot of Democrats that uh, that went in to vote, which is an, an uncharacteristic thing you see in this. But it was interesting, and it looked like 70 percent 
of uh, Democrats, registered Democrats, voted for Nikki Haley. It was a very interesting dynamic to see it out, but he's definitely a shoe in. The numbers don't lie. The trajectory doesn't lie. And he will be the nominee. And what does this mean for the general election for Trump, his performance there? Well, what it means is we have to be really careful about how we interpret the polls. We had a lot of moderate, we had a lot of in, independent, which is good. It's good to see the pools coming in from different places. However, the uh, the support and the trajectory is what we want to look at. Nikki Haley is still polling behind. She's got to now go on to win her home state, which should be kind of a shoe-in. But she's uh, she's still struggling and lagging in second place. So it'll be interesting to see how they ramp up the messaging there to to make a, a dip into President Trump's numbers. And I will point out great sportsmanship from Nikki Haley. She was commending Trump, saying yes. that he earned it, that victory in New Hampshire. Now, Haley does vow to fight on, even having lost in the nation's first primary. And she says that there are dozens of states left to go. So without that surprising upset victory that her campaign may have needed, does she have a path to the nomination? I do not think she has a path to nomination, but she's doing quite well. And I can see where her strategist would be looking at this of, you know, we're not quite ready to throw it in. Um, I do not believe she has a path to victory for the nomination on this, but um, she is fighting on and that is definitely to be applauded and respected. But I think at this point, for the purposes of trying to really mount a credible run against uh, Joe Biden, she would need to, to drop out and support President Trump just statistically on the numbers. But I think she's got a little bit more fight in her and we'll see her play it out in South Carolina. So Raven, let's talk about the Democrat side. It doesn't seem like that robocall trying to impersonate President Biden made any difference there. And it seems like this might be the end of the road for Representative Phillips, would you say? It was really uh, disappointing to see it come out. They had a lot of dynamics going on there that President Biden wasn't there, but Phillips was. Um, they had an issue with write-in because of the way that the Democrats were supposed to start in New Hampshire, and they kind of prioritized South Carolina. So there was a little conflict. But, you know, you really got to admire for Phillips the vigor he has to say, hey, we're going to all the states. We're going to get out there, which is something arguably that Biden is not able to do. Uh, in this position, but they, they wrote in and they tried to, to mount a solid run around him. But I think Phillips should be applauded for the effort and the energy he brings to the campaign. Yeah, you talk about vigor here, and Phillips had dropped $5 million of his own money. He revealed that last week for his campaign. So it seems like he's really just sticking it out and trying to muster up support. But, of course, we know that President Biden is the front runner here. Raven Harrison, political strategist and former congressional candidate, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. And now let's hear from two voters on why they voted for their candidate. Uh, Donald Trump. And simply because the country was a better place before than it is now. I voted for Nikki Haley. Um, I think she's the best candidate. I'm afraid Trump is just too much chaos and too much uh, about him. It's scary to me that I worry that no matter how this election turns out, it's, it's going to be ugly. And reactions are in after Trump's victory in New Hampshire. House Speaker Mike Johnson offered congratulations to the former president on X. The speaker says House Republican leaders and a majority of Republican senators support his re-election. Johnson called on the Republican Party to unite around Trump so the GOP can focus on putting an end to the Biden presidency. Former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani said Nikki Haley is ruining her own political future by staying in the race and opposing Trump. 
President Biden spoke at a rally with Vice President Kamala Harris on the same day as the primary. The president condemned abortion bans and accused Trump and the Supreme Court of taking away the rights and freedoms of women in America. Biden pledged that he and Kamala Harris will help restore those access to abortions. So how do we read Trump's victory in yesterday's primary? And what's next for the two Republican candidates? We take a look. Former President Trump won the New Hampshire Republican primary with a little over half the votes. He beat Nikki Haley, who had 43% of the vote, by double digits. It's a strong showing for the former president, but the primary also exposed some potential vulnerabilities for him. The results show that Trump has a particular weakness with independents and moderate voters, a demographic that his competitor Haley looked to for support in the buildup to last night. AP VoteCast, a survey conducted by the Associated Press and the NORC Center, found that some voters were concerned about Trump's electability in the November general election. New Hampshire is unique because it allows undeclared or independent voters to vote in primaries. VoteCast found that more than four in ten GOP primary voters are not affiliated with any party. This draws in voters who are not necessarily party loyalists. Out of these voters, only one in five picked Trump. Haley could see those numbers as a win. She's planning to continue her campaign. New Hampshire is first in the nation. It is not the last in the nation. But Trump is still the overwhelming choice among Republican registered voters. Even those who voted against him believe he would ultimately nab the nomination. According to VoteCast, eight out of 10 Republican voters, including more than half of Haley's supporters, think Trump will represent the party in November. And she was up and I said, wow, she's doing uh, like a speech like she won. She didn't win, she lost, and you know. The race will now move to Nevada, where Trump and Haley will take part in separate events. The next time they'll face off again will be on February 24th in South Carolina, a state in which Haley served as governor for six years. Demographically, the state will be much more like Iowa, with a large population of evangelical Christians, a demographic that lined up behind Trump in the 2016 and 2020 presidential elections. South Carolina Governor Henry McMaster has already endorsed Trump ahead of New Hampshire. A victory in South Carolina could prove crucial for both candidates before Super Tuesday on March 5th. Continuing with Trump's New Hampshire victory, we take a look at some exit polls. And today's Daniel Monahan has a more detailed breakdown of the voters and what's on their minds. Voters were less staunchly conservative and less closely tied to the Republican Party than those in last week's Iowa caucuses, according to a CNN exit poll. Voters who were registered as Republicans broke heavily for Trump, with roughly three quarters favoring him. Voters registered as undeclared favored Haley, with about two-thirds backing her. For educational background, about two-thirds of voters without college degrees backed Trump while roughly six in 10 college graduates supported Haley. Voters largely cited the economy or immigration as their top issue in the election, with fewer citing abortion or foreign policy as their top concern. CBS News's exit polling shows signs of division among Republicans. Eight in 10 Trump voters would be dissatisfied if Haley were to win the nomination, and even more Haley voters would be dissatisfied if Trump becomes the nominee. 
Trump has strong support among his voters. 80% strongly favor him, 16% like Trump with reservations. Haley's support was more watered down. 29% strongly favor her, 31% like her with reservations, and 39% dislike the other candidates. Nevada, South Carolina, and Michigan will all hold primaries in February. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And more on politics, Senate leaders say negotiators are close to a deal on Ukraine and the border that'll be able to win wide bipartisan support and with a good enough margin to have the House follow suit. Senators say negotiators have turned to funding border policy changes. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has the latest on the holdup. Now this work is not easy. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said negotiators have reached a pivotal stretch on a deal that could gain enough GOP votes to replenish aid for Ukraine. The Democratic leader criticized MAGA Republicans for the holdup. Many of these MAGA Republicans are taking their cues from Donald Trump directly. Lead GOP negotiator Senator James Langford said Tuesday there certainly will not be a vote this week. Langford says many issues still need to be worked out, but is very hopeful the text will be out sometime this week. President Biden is requesting $110 billion from Congress. The measure includes military aid for Israel and Ukraine, support and deterrence in the Asian Pacific, and overhauls to immigration. A core group of negotiators has been working for nearly two months on changes to border and immigration policy. Top Democratic negotiator Senator Chris Murphy says time for Ukraine is running out. Reports suggest that on some days, Ukraine is firing one quarter to one half the number of rounds that the Russian military is. That is a recipe for disaster. Murphy says there's no reason to wait weeks to get the bill on the floor. He wants to see a bipartisan effort over the next few days. We have been at these negotiations for four months. We are at the finish line. Meanwhile, the U.S. came empty-handed for the first time as host of a 50-nation monthly meeting made up of allies that support Ukraine. The group was established by Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin in 2022. Austin urged the group to dig deep to provide Ukraine with more air defense systems and interceptors until Congress approves more aid. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Stick around. The U.S. continues to hit Houthi targets, threatening ships in the Red Sea. Find out what kind of effect the military says the strikes are having. Israel's military says it has the southern city of Han Yunus in Gaza surrounded. Find out about the latest efforts to free hostages through a humanitarian pause. Good to have you back. A Russian military plane carrying 74 people crashed near the Ukrainian border. That's according to Russian state-run media. A number of those on board were Ukrainian prisoners of war to be exchanged for a swap. The cause of the crash is not yet known. Russian news agencies reporting that the plane was carrying 65 Ukrainian prisoners of war alongside six crew members and three other people when it crashed. The incident happened in the Russian city of Belgorod, according to a local official. Video captured shows a vast fireball and a huge column of smoke at the crash site. 
The official said investigators and emergency workers were already on the scene. The Kremlin said that it's looking into the situation. The Belgorod region has come under frequent attacks from Ukraine in recent months. In December, a missile strike killed 25 people there. And Turkey's parliament on Tuesday endorsed Sweden's membership in NATO. This removes a major hurdle for the Nordic country to joining the military alliance. A large majority of the Turkish parliament voted in favor of Sweden's bid. This vote will now allow Turkey's president to officially ratify Sweden's membership. The vote comes nearly two years after Sweden applied to join NATO. In May 2022, following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, both Sweden and Finland applied for membership. While Finland joined NATO in April last year, Sweden faced objections from two countries, Turkey and Hungary. The Turkish president accused Sweden of harboring terrorist groups like the Kurdistan Workers' Party. Last year, that group claimed responsibility for a blast in Turkey's capital. However, Sweden has since taken steps to crack down on terrorist activities in the country. It also pledged deeper cooperation with Turkey and to support Turkey's EU membership bid. A group of diplomats say the Chinese regime has been lobbying other countries to praise its human rights record. The revelations came ahead of a key United Nations meeting where China faced questions and criticism over its actions in Hong Kong and Xinjiang. According to the diplomats, China's mission at the UN in Geneva had been sending memos to envoys from other countries. The Chinese envoy reportedly targeted non-Western countries an African diplomat speaking to Reuters on condition of anonymity confirmed having received a request and said he would do as asked. The revelation came just a day before the UN Human Rights Council held a meeting to review China's human rights record. The Universal Periodic Review is a process all member states must undergo every five years. And more than 160 countries registered to take part in the discussion in Geneva about China's human rights record. What cases did they make? Here's the inside scoop. The Chinese regime faced rare scrutiny of its human rights record at the United Nations. This UN review is the first since a 2022 UN report said the detention of Uyghurs and other minorities in Xinjiang and northwest China may constitute crimes against humanity. The UN's permanent representative issued recommendations, including to stop the persecution and detention of Uyghurs and Tibetans and allow freedom of religion or belief, as well as repeal the national security law imposed on Hong Kong by Beijing. An extraordinary high number of more than 160 countries, some critics of Beijing, some allies, registered to take part. That meant each country had a maximum of 45 seconds to speak. Here's the Canadian ambassador. Canada recommends that China, one, implement the recommendations set out by the CSCR and CEDAW and all coercive measures imposed on Uyghurs, Tibetans and other ethnic minorities, including forced labor, coercive labor transfers, forced sterilizations and mandatory residential schools. Two, ensure Hong Kong upholds its obligations under the ICCPR. Three, repeal the current national security law in Hong Kong and discontinue all cases against individuals charged for exercising their human rights and freedoms. Four, end all forms of enforced disappearance targeting human rights defenders, ethnic minorities and Falun Gong practitioners and five grant the UN including the OHCHR and special procedures full and unfettered access to all regions of China including Tibet and Xinjiang. Canada also notes with concern the increasing extraterritorial repression of human rights defenders. It's a speed reading exercise for some ambassadors to get all their points in. 
we wish to recommend that China first end the criminalization of religious and peaceful civil expression by ethnic and ethno-religious groups, including Muslim Uyghurs and Buddhist Tibetans and Mongolians, under the pretext of protecting state security. Second, repeal Hong Kong's national security law, ignoring fundamental rights and freedoms, and end intimidation and attacks on human rights lawyers and journalists. Third, stop cross-border kidnappings and intimidating Chinese citizens living abroad. Beijing denied any human rights abuses. Chen Yu, China's permanent representative to the UN, said the freedom of religious beliefs of Chinese citizens are safeguarded. Washington's envoy repeated the US accusation that the Chinese regime is committing genocide. The U.S. carried out more strikes in Yemen earlier today, destroying two Houthi missiles aimed at the Red Sea. Those missiles were preparing to launch and posed an imminent threat to ships in the region, according to U.S. military statement. It's the latest round of strikes against the Iran-backed group over its targeting of Red Sea shipping. It comes after a larger round of strikes yesterday. The Houthis have said their attacks are in response to Israel's actions in Gaza. The attacks have disrupted global shipping and raised concerns of a wider conflict in the region. The Pentagon says so far it has destroyed or degraded over 25 missile launch and deployment facilities and over 20 missiles. A Pentagon spokesman said that the last Houthi attack was January 18th, suggesting the strikes were having an impact. And thousands are fleeing Han Yunus in southern Gaza as Israel's military says it has the city surrounded. The IDF says it killed over 100 terrorists in 24 hours in the western part of the city. Israel says it has killed around 9,000 terrorists since the start of the war. The White House said yesterday talks to secure the release of Hamas's hostages are not yet at the level of negotiations. Qatar says it has engaged in serious discussions with Israel and Hamas. A spokesman said Qatar was getting a constant stream of replies after presenting ideas to both sides. He stated comments from Israeli officials were causing obstacles. Israel's government says there will be no ceasefire that leaves hostages in Gaza or Hamas in power. The White House says its Middle East envoy is in Cairo, Egypt. He's set to hold what the White House called active discussions in the region. That's over ensuring a hostage release and humanitarian pause. Coming up, concerns over tariff evasion by Chinese-owned companies in the U.S. Federal authorities raid a factory in Ohio linked to one such company. Hear what lawmakers had to say about it. The Chinese stock market is on a meltdown as performances hit a multi-year low this week. We're bringing on the host of NTD Business to break down the numbers for us after the break. Welcome back. Lawmakers are concerned that Chinese companies operating in the U.S. are evading tariffs. A Chinese-owned auto parts maker in Ohio was recently searched by the Department of Homeland Security. The maker's parent company has been accused of trade fraud. Entity's Jason Blair reports. WHIO and other local news networks reported that the DHS searched Harco Manufacturing Group in Moraine, Ohio last week. The company makes vehicle brake parts. Harco is owned by Sunsong Holdings, who is a subsidiary of Qingdao Sunsong. Qingdao Sunsong was recently accused of evading U.S. tariffs by moving part of their production to Thailand. 
Representatives Mike Gallagher and Darren LaHood wrote a letter to the DHS about this, saying it's a, quote, case of blatant trade fraud that is having a catastrophic impact on American manufacturers. The Department of Homeland Security has not confirmed yet whether the raid is connected to the trade fraud accusations. A DHS representative told Axios, quote, Homeland Security investigations executed a federal search warrant in the Moraine, Ohio area January 18th. This is an ongoing investigation. No further information is available at this time. Jason Blair, NTD News. And joining us now is NTD business host Don Ma, as you can see, to discuss the Chinese stock market meltdown. Stock markets in China and Hong Kong have slumped to multi-year lows this week. Don, tell us what happened. Well, first of all, uh, the market has rallied a bit since then. Uh, this was on news that uh, Chinese officials announced uh, boosting liquidity in the Chinese economy. So it rallied a bit, but in the past three years, Chinese stocks have lost somewhere around $6 trillion. So that rally is maybe just a drop in the bucket. So what happened here was that uh, the Chinese economy has been through a lot. For example, uh, in recent months, China has seen real, real estate crisis, uh, slowest growth uh, in terms of GDP in decades, and as well as uh, businesses have seen crackdowns on them within China. Uh, so this is losing a lot of uh, confidence from investors. It's uh, as as a con uh, confidence evaporates, it seems like many investors are giving up on the wait for China to fix the economy. Uh, stock markets uh, in Hong Kong and Shanghai uh, tumbled on Monday, and the Shanghai index uh, making its worst day since April 2022. So global investors uh, seems like are heading for the exits. Um, and that's what sent initially the stocks uh, crashing. And, you know, China was just a few years ago a must have country in global portfolios. Uh, so it seems like this is a dramatic contrast. And there's a herd effect uh, in play here as well. So if a lot of investors are leaving China, you don't want to be the only one left. Um, so that could be potentially making the situation worse. So this week's sell-off was essentially a combination of months of frustration uh, over the direction of the Chinese economy. Uh, it remains to be seen if uh, future actions by uh, Chinese officials will turn around uh, investor confidence. But as of right now, it could be a sort of a wait-and-see situation. Yeah, that's on top of everything. Like you mentioned, the economical struggles China has been through. So investors must be really bummed about Tell me more about investors feel about that. Right. So investors who had hopes that Beijing would come to the rescue of the stock market is having second thoughts right now. Uh, that's on the fact that if you look back, China has had a spotty record when it comes to rescuing the stock market. Um, and Chinese state media reported that it's going to take more forceful and effective measures to support market confidence. But investors are saying they're kind of just throwing, you know, cups of water into a huge fire here, and they're not doing as much as some investors want them to do. So in a nutshell, a number of China investors are, are losing faith in, in China, the market, uh, the overall economy. Uh, they want Beijing to do more, but officials uh, seems to be like doing just a little bit at a time. And fundamentals in China has not been that strong. And uh, in terms of short-term market movements, uh, Chinese officials as well are not really focused on that. Um, and another thing I think uh, investors 
in China should keep in mind is that uh, CCP policies are not uh, directly in for the benefit of the stock market and the economy. I think what comes first for the Chinese Communist Party is the party itself. So uh, investors should keep that in mind as well. Right, right. Well, thank you very much, Don Ma, host of NTD Business. Thank you. And still to come, Boeing pauses production for 737 aircraft for quality control. And company leaders will face questioning from lawmakers on Capitol Hill over a mid-air panel blowout. The LA Times joins the wave of companies laying off employees. Nearly 20% of the newsroom staff could be gone. Find out why it could be better news than expected. Good to have you back. A winter storm earlier this week made for a wet commute in San Diego, California. The heaviest January rainfall ever recorded there left streets flooded. Rain pounded the city at half an inch per hour as firefighters and lifeguards rushed to rescue dozens from flash floods. San Diego's mayor declared a state of emergency. Streams began overflowing and floodwaters swept away vehicles. According to NBC Channel 7, flash flooding likely peaked at about seven feet. Some residents took refuge on their rooftops. Many schools closed as a precautionary measure. No fatalities were reported. Over to Boeing, Boeing will stop its production and delivery operations for a day. The company says its production plant near Seattle will pause operations tomorrow for quality control. The CEO of Boeing will meet with lawmakers today, according to Senator Maria Cantwell's office. The FAA is asking airlines to check the door plugs on their Boeing 737 MAX 9 planes. It says the aircraft design appears to be okay, but a manufacturing error like loose bolts could be the problem. The affected aircraft models are still grounded. United Airlines says that's had a huge impact on their operations as one of the biggest buyers of Boeing jets. That's something that they really need to check out. <laughs> yeah, for it's very, it could have ended uh, much worse than that. Well, Safety right. first. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and a group of thieves used a stolen government-owned vehicle to break into a Southern California clothing store. The brazen smash and grab was all caught on video. And today's Christina Corona has more on the story. The burglary occurred around 4.45 a.m. Sunday morning at Hype Kingdom in Bellflower, a black-owned business that sells clothes, shoes, and accessories located on the 17,000 block of Lakewood Boulevard. Surveillance footage shows the suspects ramming a car multiple times into the store, breaking a security gate and wall before ransacking and stealing hundreds of items. More than a dozen suspects can be seen wearing hooded sweatshirts and masks, leaving with armfuls of items. Items. Police confirm the suspects used a stolen government vehicle to ram into the storefront. The owner of the store estimated that more than 500 items were stolen, but the exact amount of merchandise is currently unknown. Authorities say several suspects are still at large. Christina Corona, NTD News, California. Wow.
feel for the business owners there. Yeah, exactly. That's especially small business owners. They don't have anything to fall back on or they need to, you know, they, it's not a chain. It's yeah, terrible. We, yeah. Yeah. Well, as we mentioned, those insurance policies are now going away because people are making claims of that retail theft. Right. So organized crime like that should really be um, get under control in yeah. California over there. And just how deceptive. They use a stolen government car so that they don't know who can out trace it back. Right. Crazy. Los Angeles Times plans to lay off 94 newsroom employees starting this week. That's 20% of its newsroom staff. It's a large number, but the head of the journalists union says that's actually less than expected. This is after the LA Times Guild walked off the job last week to protest the impending layoffs. Matt Paris, president of the Media Guild of the West, said many departments across the newsroom will be heavily hit. He said some of those being laid off may be eligible for buyouts under the union contract. Layoffs and buyouts have impacted many companies in the news industry over the past year. The Washington Post, NPR, CNN and Vox Media were all hit, just to name a few. And you can add eBay to the list of tech layoffs this month. The company's CEO announced yesterday it's cutting a thousand jobs. That's about 9% of its full-time workforce. eBay also plans to scale back contracts with its alternate workforce in the coming months. So that would include independent contractors, freelancers, and etc. eBay's chief said a challenging macroeconomic environment is what led to the cuts, adding that the company's headcount and expenses have outpaced business growth. Netflix surprised Wall Street yesterday by announcing it added over 13 million subscribers last quarter. That's more than 4 million over what analysts expected. That brings the streaming giant's total subscriber base to over 260 million. Only 1.2 million of the new subscribers live in the U.S. The rest are mainly in Europe and Asia. Netflix said it's seen success with its cheaper advertising supported plans and its crackdown on password sharing. Many thought the crackdown would actually backfire and lead to people canceling their subscriptions. Yeah, Netflix is a heavy hitter in the industry. Yeah, it is. And, you know, who would have known, like, like, like it said, um, many people thought, you know, raising the cost for those subscriptions would really backfire, but it doesn't seem like that's the case. That's amid everyone else, well, not everyone else, many other tech companies doing all these layoffs. Wow. Well, yeah, and, you know, there's people in Asia and Europe, they must just really like to just cozy up and put on the flicks. Yeah. Yeah, so the residential real estate market took a tumble in 2023. A new report released last Friday shows housing sales haven't been this low since 1995. Here's a look at the latest numbers. Home sales took a hit last year, dropping to the lowest levels in 28 years. Just over 4 million homes were sold in 2023. That's a 19% drop from 2022, according to data released last Friday from the National Association of Realtors. There are simply not enough homes out there. Home prices, though, hit a record high. The median home sale price last year was $389,800 up 1% from 2022. It's been a great news for homeowners, but very difficult year for home buyers. The combination of high sticker prices and fewer homes for sale is making the buyer's market even more competitive, and that's driving down home sales. Yoon says fewer people are putting their homes on the market because they've likely locked in lower mortgage rates. 
homeowners are loving their 3%, 4% mortgage rate and do not want to give that up. But there is good news. Mortgage rates are starting to come down. The 30-year fixed rate mortgage averaged 6.60% in the week ending January 18th. That's down from 6.66% the previous week, according to data from Freddie Mac released last Thursday. And more homes usually come on the market in the spring. We do anticipate more supply to steadily appear this year. If you are looking to buy a home this year, Yoon recommends staying within your budget. Don't rush a decision. Look for the right inventory. Don't put too many contingencies into the contract and be flexible on the closing date. That will make you look more attractive to the seller. And you can maybe see it that way that now is a good time for the all cash buyers to buy since the prices are so low. Oh yeah, if you get all that cash, I guess yeah. it could be to your advantage. But you know, we've seen those Fed rates really high and now they're maybe going to start stopping those rate hikes and maybe back some of that off. So that could be a little bit of good news in the future yeah, for the housing for sure. market. Yeah, stay with us. We're going to talk about some realistic art explained by one of the finalists of Entity's sixth international figure painting competition. We ask her about the details of her art and some tips for up and coming artists. So stay tuned. Joining me now is Renee Wong, an instructor at Laguna College of Art and Design, to learn more about realist oil painting and what makes it unique. Renee, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Kevin. So what goes into making a realist oil painting? Um, it's a great question. And I would say for each artist, the process is very different. But obviously, to begin with, you will have solid foundational training. Usually a good piece of art uh, has great composition, which re really requires a lot of um, uh, sketching and I would say uh, many artists that will do multiple studies of the same painting before actually uh, beginning the painting process. There will be a lot of sketches, uh, color studies, value studies, studies of composition before actually delving into painting. Uh, so I think uh, the prep work is really a big part of it. That's amazing and I see that there are just so many principles that need to be followed in creating a realist work. I've noticed even just the details like the reflection of light on a fingernail, getting down to that nitty gritty detail. How do you go about creating something like that and paying attention to all these things at once? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I would say a good piece of art has hierarchy, which is basically what you want the viewer to focus on. Um, and I would say uh, art with a crazy amount of detail is not necessarily good because uh, it doesn't really tell the viewer where to look at. Uh, so a good piece of realist art, in my opinion, um, it's, it puts detail in really selectively at the most important aspect, uh, basically the focal point of a painting. Uh, basically that's giving viewer a direction of where to look at and what's important about that piece of painting uh, instead of just um, kind of scattering detail um, everywhere in the painting. So tell us a little bit more about your painting that you submitted to the competition. Uh, yeah, so this is um, uh, oil on canvas um, that I've done in actually cutting a little close to the deadline because I uh, found out about the competition a little later <laughs> uh, into um, the, the process. So uh, I, I basically, uh, for um, uh, many days, I just got up in the morning, uh, started painting, and I worked uh, way into uh, the night. And uh, But I am really glad I can get it done and submit it into the competition. Uh, so this is a, a painting of me and my 
uh, fiance and now husband. Uh, at the time, uh, we took our engagement photo at uh, Laguna Beach and we were meditating on these rocks and <laughs> we were actually getting splashed with the waves. Uh, but I just thought the uh, scenery and the lighting is really beautiful. And um, um, after uh, finishing the painting, uh, I, I could see that there's um, that kind of sense of peace uh, amidst the chaos. And we're kind of in this environment, we're getting splashed by the waves, but uh, we try to remain, um, I would say, firm and um, be at peace. Being unmoved, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. That's really great. And so in this piece, what were you trying to draw the attention to? Um, I would say it's definitely the figure. Uh, I place the emphasis on those figures uh, in terms of the design of light and color. So I use more saturated colors, a lot of uh, oranges and pinks in the skin tone. Uh, also, uh, I, I put some cool tones in the background behind the figure just to emphasize the warmth of the skin. And, and I try to give the environment a little bit more atmosphere uh, by uh, giving them lower contrast uh, in terms of the waves and the rocks. And I put a lot of contrast on the figure just to uh, help to really put the uh, focal point on the two figures. So right before we wrap up here, Renee, what advice do you have for aspiring realist painters? Um, yeah, and, and um, I, I would say, uh, first of all, is uh, obviously uh, putting in hard work always pays off. And um, uh, I, I don't even, uh, I, I don't even live up to the standard, but you know, if you can take er uh, some time out of uh, every single day uh, for making art, no matter how busy you are, uh, I would say you'll definitely be on the right track. Uh, and then is to find artists that are uh, like-minded, uh, find uh, organizations like the, the NTD painting competition, uh, uh, joining art clubs that uh, promote realist art to uh, really make friends with other artists that um, have a similar aspiration and you can learn a lot from them. Um, and I would say, uh, Nowadays, I, I believe that you don't really need to, for example, go to an art school to get traditional training. There are a lot of great resources online and things like workshops and ateliers. So uh, studying realist art is not something that would break your budget. So uh, there are just so many ways for one to improve the skill. But I would say, yeah, hard work is definitely the, the most important thing. Yeah, and it sounds like what you're saying, a community can be so important for Absolutely, people yeah. working on this art form. Renee, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Kevin. It's great to be on here. Yes, and that concludes our discussion on realist oil painting. We hope you stick around. we got more news coverage for you coming up. There are real consequences to controlled media. And NTD's founders know them firsthand. Our freedom of thought is the price. This is the lesson that guides us in everything we do. Yeah, so there's a tear gas there. We know the value of a free society. And we take seriously the responsibility to preserve it. We are NTD.
Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are top stories today. Former President Trump wins in New Hampshire with Nikki Haley not yet ready to throw in the towel what Trump said in his victory speech. A look ahead at what's to come in South Carolina. What does Nikki Haley need to focus on in her campaign? And is there a possibility of Trump losing the state? The Pentagon warns money for Ukraine has run out as a top Senate negotiator says there'll be no vote on aid this week. More on the push for a bipartisan deal. The U.S. strikes two Houthi missiles aimed at the Red Sea just before they were launched. But are these strikes having an effect? The military weighs in coming up. Israel's military says it has the southern city of Han Yunus in Gaza surrounded. Find out about the latest talks to free hostages and humanitarian pause. And Turkey approves Sweden's bid to join NATO. The Turkish president is expected to ratify the bid in the coming days. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Today is Wednesday, January 24th. Yes, in today's top news, former President Trump winning New Hampshire's primary, beating out candidate Nikki Haley. And on the Democratic side, President Biden has secured victory in the Granite State. Trump won by double digits and secured 11 of the delegates and Nikki Haley, eight. Let's look at the results. GOP frontrunner Trump claiming about 54% of the vote with over 163,000 votes. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley has about 43% of the vote, totaling just under 130,000 votes. 91% of the votes have been counted. The former president touting the latest results, sounding confident about upcoming races, including a potential matchup with President Biden. That's as Haley is saying the race is not over yet. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao was at Trump's watch party last night, attended by supporters like Vivek Ramaswamy and Carrie Lake, who told NTD why New Hampshire is a key victory. Another decisive victory for former President Trump right here in New Hampshire. This is a fantastic state. This is a great, great state. You know, we won New Hampshire three times now, three. In history, no Republican presidential candidate has ever won the first two states and then not go on to win the ultimate nomination in the party. And Trump is sounding confident about the upcoming races and a potential face-off with President Biden in November. We are going to win this. We have no choice. If we don't win, I think our country is finished. While Trump took aim at his now only rival left in the party, Nikki Haley, she failed badly. Now He'd praised those who dropped out and endorsed him. And both Vivek Ramaswamy and Kerry Lake telling NTD that a victory in New Hampshire matters a lot. Now, if the exit poll and other numbers are to be believed, for the first time in history, we have more Democrats and independents voting in a GOP primary than actual Republicans. And so that means this is effectively a general election testing ground. And if he wins by a reasonable margin, that predicts a landslide in November. This is huge. This is the end of the road for Nikki Haley, and it's time for her to drop out. Nikki Haley, while acknowledging Trump's win, insisting that a race is not over. New Hampshire is first in the nation. It is not the last in the nation. 
And the next one is my sweet state of South Carolina. Nikki Haley is setting her sights on South Carolina, her home state, where she's already announcing campaign stops and planning to spend millions of dollars on advertisements. Meanwhile, Trump says he will win in both South Carolina and also Nevada, which is where the next race is coming up in just about two weeks. Reporting in Nashua, New Hampshire, Iris Tao, NTD News. And NTD's Chris Spears was at the primary election watch party for Congressman Phillips, a long-shot candidate who some say performed better than expected last night. Here's that report. President Biden won the Democratic primary here in New Hampshire. Phillips was pleased with the results. He was expecting to get about 20 percent, even though polls were saying that he would get in the single digits. So yeah, he and his supporters were quite pleased with the results. Um, unfortunately, None of it mattered because the DNC itself sent a letter to the Democratic Party here in New Hampshire saying that the results here will be meaningless. Um, that's basically over a conflict surrounding the, where the first primary in the country should be held. Um, Dean Phillips commented on the results of the race. Here's what he had to say. Congratulations to President Biden, who won absolutely won tonight but by no means in a way that a strong incumbent president should, but I respect him, he won. We're gonna go to South Carolina, then we're gonna go to Michigan, then we're gonna go to 47 other states, and I'm gonna see you all around. And as Dean Phillips just said, South Carolina is the next state in the Democratic primary. There, Joe Biden is polling at about 69%, Phillips at about 5%. Nationally, the polling looks similar with Joe Biden, roughly around 60% or so. Um, unless something dramatic changes in the next few months, which it could because it's 2024, Joe Biden will probably be the nominee for the Democratic Party in November. And for a look ahead at South Carolina's primary, we bring in Bart Marcois. He's a former presidential campaign policy advisor and former deputy assistant secretary of energy for policy and international affairs. Thanks for joining us today, Bart. Good morning, Kevin. Always nice to be with you. Great to have you here with us. Haley has mentioned Super Tuesday, and South Carolina is her home state, and it can be pivotal. Does she need to do something different to have a competitive race there in order to stay in the game? There's nothing she can do that would make a, this race competitive. In South Carolina, her home state, where she was governor, uh, she is trailing Trump two to one. Trump uh, has the endorsements of every major elected official except for a single uh, member of Congress from the South Carolina delegation. Uh, Congressman Norman has endorsed Haley. But both senators, the governor, the attorney general, every top Republican in the state has endorsed President Trump. And he's leading there by, in the polls, he's over 50 percent in most of the polls. And that's before uh, Vivek and Ron dropped out and endorsed him right, and before Bart. Tim Scott endorsed him. Right, exactly. And 538's polling average as of today shows Trump at 62% of the vote, Haley at 25. So really, is it statistically possible for Trump not to be victorious there? It is not, not in my opinion. They say that South Carolina is Trump country. And as you mentioned, you know, Senators Tim Scott and Lindsey Graham have both endorsed Trump here. So what kind of voter is Haley banking on in South Carolina? Well, the same kind of voter she banked on in New Hampshire. Uh, uh, some 
some uh, libertarians who are swayed by her being backed by the Koch network, uh, uh, Democrats, um, left of center Republicans, and hard left, uh, hard left uh, independents, all of whom just want to stop Trump. You look at uh, and Vivek Ramaswamy called it last night was a general election in New Hampshire. Biden wasn't even on the ballot. Most it was a record turnout. Uh, so far, it's over 312, 315 on track to be 320,000 votes in just in the Republican primary. The previous record holder was President Trump in 2016 for turnout. And, and you had all of these people voting against Trump, and he still won. You're going to see, you're not, in South Carolina, the Democrats, Biden is on the ballot. The Democrats have to vote in their own primary. She's relying on an increasingly smaller pool of anti-Trump voters, each of whom is being won over by Trump, little by little, each time Trump gives a gracious uh, speech like he did after Iowa, each time he he gets a new endorsement, each time he focuses on Biden, the people that hate Trump will either stay home or they will hold their nose and vote for him. But the people who like Trump are growing and growing and growing. And I, I just see Trump moving forward throughout this primary process, gaining the nomination and winning by a landslide in November. Right, so Bart, we got about 30 seconds here. A pro-Trump super PAC is calling on Haley to drop out. We have a free and fair election process in this country, or hope, hope to have, and there's a lot that needs to happen in that, and there's some rivalry going on, but is there a time when a candidate needs to drop out and bring unity to a party in order to secure the nomination and then obviously the general election victory? Sure, sure. If she wants to maintain viability within the Republican Party, she should heed these calls to drop out, but it's her call to make. Uh, we, we can't say to her, oh, drop out now. You know, she wants to stay in. She can stay in. But, but Nikki Haley has some really nasty business in her background, and it's best for her future viability if that doesn't come out. And with a month to go between now and South Carolina, some of that stuff is uh, going to start leaking out, and it's better to just um, drop out endorse the front runner and and unify the party don't don't make it a nasty thing don't don't turn republican voters against each other uh you know she has to make her decision but but that it's clear when there's no clear path forward the responsible thing to do is drop out unify and move forward well, we'll see if she heeds her, your advice. She's obviously still in the game for now. Bart Marquois, former presidential campaign policy advisor, thank you. Thank you. And we're going to continue with Trump's New Hampshire victory. We take a look at some exit polls. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more detailed breakdown of the voters and what's on their minds. Voters were less staunchly conservative and less closely tied to the Republican Party than those in last week's Iowa caucuses, according to a CNN exit poll. About two-thirds of New Hampshire GOP primary voters described themselves as conservative, with about one-quarter calling themselves very conservative. Most said they did not consider themselves a part of the MAGA movement. In Iowa, nearly 9 in 10 described themselves as conservative, 
and nearly half identified themselves as MAGA. Roughly 6 in 10 New Hampshire GOP primary voters said they'd be satisfied to see Trump as the Republican Party's eventual nominee, and most said they'd consider him fit to return to the presidency even if convicted of a crime. Voters who were registered as Republicans broke heavily for Trump, with roughly three-quarters favoring him. Voters registered as undeclared favored Haley, with about two-thirds backing her. For educational background, about two-thirds of voters without college degrees backed Trump, while roughly six in ten college graduates supported Haley. About eight in ten of Trump's voters denied the legitimacy of President Joe Biden's election win in 2020. Most Haley supporters believe the election was legitimate. The primary electorate as a whole was a largely unhappy one. About 8 in 10 expressed dissatisfaction with the state of the country. Voters largely cited the economy or immigration as their top issue in the election, with fewer citing abortion or foreign policy as their top concern. But Trump and Haley voters diverged widely in their attitudes across the spectrum of issues. Roughly 8 in 10 Trump voters said that most illegal immigrants in the U.S. should be deported from the country, while about two-thirds of Haley voters said that those immigrants should be given the chance to apply for legal status. CBS News's exit polling shows signs of division among Republicans. 8 in 10 Trump voters would be dissatisfied if Haley were to win the nomination, and even more Haley voters would be dissatisfied if Trump becomes the nominee. Trump has strong support among his voters, 80% strongly favor him, 16% like Trump with reservations. Haley's support was more watered down, 29% strongly favor her, 31% like her with reservations, and 39% dislike the other candidates. The next primaries are coming up fast. Nevada, South Carolina, and Michigan will all hold primaries in February. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Senate leaders say negotiators are close to a deal on Ukraine and the border that will be able to win wide bipartisan support and with a good enough margin to have the House follow suit. Senators say negotiations have turned to funding border policy changes. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has the latest on the holdup. Now this work is not easy. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said negotiators have reached a pivotal stretch on a deal that could gain enough GOP votes to replenish aid for Ukraine. The Democratic leader criticized MAGA Republicans for the holdup. Many of these MAGA Republicans are taking their cues from Donald Trump directly. Lead GOP negotiator Senator James Lankford said Tuesday there certainly will not be a vote this week. Lankford says many issues still need to be worked out, but is very hopeful the text will be out sometime this week. President Biden is requesting $110 billion from Congress. The measure includes military aid for Israel and Ukraine, support and deterrence in the Asian Pacific, and overhauls to immigration. A core group of negotiators has been working for nearly two months on changes to border and immigration policy. Top Democratic negotiator Senator Chris Murphy says time for Ukraine is running out. Reports suggest that on some days, Ukraine is firing one quarter to one half the number of rounds that the Russian military is. That is a recipe for disaster. Murphy says there's no reason to wait weeks to get the bill on the floor. He wants to see a bipartisan effort over the next few days. We have been at these negotiations for four months. We are at the finish line. Meanwhile, the U.S. came empty-handed for the first time as host of a 50-nation monthly meeting made up of allies that support Ukraine. 
The group was established by Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin in 2022. Austin urged the group to dig deep, to provide Ukraine with more air defense systems and interceptors until Congress approves more aid. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Next up, U.S. Central Command said it struck two Houthi missiles aimed at the Red Sea. The targeted attacks happened around 2.30 a.m. local time. How successful has the campaign been in deterring Houthi ship attacks? Israel's military says it has the southern city of Han Yunus in Gaza surrounded. We have more on the latest talks to free hostages and a humanitarian pause coming up. Good to have you back. Thousands are fleeing Han Yunus in southern Gaza as Israel's military says it has the city surrounded. The IDF says it killed over 100 terrorists in 24 hours in the western part of the city. Israel says it has killed around 9,000 terrorists since the start of the war. The White House said yesterday talks to secure the release of Hamas's hostages are not yet at the level of negotiations. Qatar says it has engaged in serious discussions with Israel and Hamas. A spokesman said Qatar was getting a constant stream of replies after presenting ideas to both sides. He stated comments from Israeli officials were causing obstacles. Israel's government says there will be no ceasefire that leaves hostages in Gaza or Hamas in power. The White House says its Middle East envoy is in Cairo, Egypt. He's set to hold what the White House called active discussions in the region. That's over ensuring a hostage release and humanitarian pause. And joining me now for analysis on the Israel-Hamas war is Gerard Feliti. He is a senior counsel at the Lawfare Project. Good morning, Gerard. It's good to see you this morning. So first, in those talks for hostage release, tell me first, which do you think of the two sides has more leverage at this moment? Well, I think, quite frankly, it's Israel that has the higher leverage. They have the military force that's currently in Gaza, and they're eroding Hamas's capabilities to continue uh, the war against Israel. In the last 24 hours, there have been actually no rockets launched by Hamas towards Israel. For the first time, we're seeing a degradation in Hamas's capabilities. On the other hand, you know, Hamas is in a very strong position because it does still have over 100 hostages, uh, and the people of Israel and citizens of the world who share the, uh, the, the plight of these people really want to see them returned. Right. And what, um, because if Israel is asking Hamas to release all the hostages, what would it mean for Hamas um, if they would do that for them in the war, because then they would have left, uh, basically let go of all their leverage? Well, it would have let them go. Uh, letting them go would remove a lot of the leverage. But on the other hand, you will notice that Hamas has not actually done um, used these hostages during the war. It has not, for example, executed them that we know of. It has not put pressure on Israel with the safety of the hostages. So the war has gone on for the last hundred days, regardless of the status of the hostages. So I think. You can say that the presence of the hostages is more a psychological point than a military one, mm-hmm. and Hamas would not be negatively affected by letting them go. That's an interesting point. So how much sacrifice do you think Israel is willing to make in those negotiations, should it come to that soon, and um, for, for the hostages, also considering the mounting pressure back home for Netanyahu? 
Well, Israel has moved considerably in its position. It was considering a humanitarian pause of between one and two months in order to exchange all of the remaining hostages. It was willing to release a number, some, some of the thousands of Palestinian prisoners uh, in its jails in exchange for those hostages and make concessions on where the troops would be, where IDF soldiers would be located within Gaza. So Israel has moved considerably in its position. And this does reflect increased pressure on Prime Minister Netanyahu to negotiate the release of these hostages because after 100 days and change, uh, it, this situation has dragged on for so long that the families are really getting restless and want to see a return of their loved ones. And so Israel proposed a two-month ceasefire, which was rejected. Now there are reports of a one-month pause. So what would be the impact of such a long truce for Israel? For Israel, it would be very limiting. It would basically solidify its current military operations in place. Now, I don't think we'll expect to see any ceasefire or pause until after it completes its operations in Khan Yunus. This is one of the last uh, strong points that Hamas has established. So Israel will not likely enter into any uh, ceasefire or pause until it completes its operations there. But what it means for Israel is its forces will essentially be frozen in place and the momentum of its advance will be stopped. This will give Hamas obviously time to rearm, resupply, and be reinvigorated in the fight. So that is the biggest risk for Israel. Right. Blinken the last time also said that the truce would, uh, a truce would buy Israel more time to carry out the war afterwards. Do you think that's the case here as well? Not necessarily. Whenever you have a pause that's that long, it changes the scale and the scope of the battlefield. It's not starting from scratch if you start fighting again, but you have to readjust for the new realities on the ground that have changed in that last month. So whether or not Israel intensifies the fighting really would have to do with whether they feel that Hamas remains a viable fighting force. And one thing to remember, part of all these negotiations, Israel wants to see the elimination of Hamas leadership, whether by force or by having them exiled from Gaza. And that is a major point of contention in these negotiations. Yes, got it. Thank you so much, Gerard Feliti. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And the U.S. carried out more strikes in Yemen earlier today, destroying two Houthi missiles aimed at the Red Sea. Those missiles were preparing to launch and posed an imminent threat to ships in the region, according to a U.S. military statement. It's the latest round of strikes against the Iran-backed group over its targeting of Red Sea shipping. It comes after a larger round of strikes yesterday. The Houthis have said their attacks are in response to Israel's actions in Gaza. The attacks have disrupted global shipping and raised concerns of a wider conflict in the region. The Pentagon says so far it has destroyed or degraded over 25 missile launch and deployment facilities and over 20 missiles. A Pentagon spokesman said that the last Houthi attack was January 18th, suggesting the strikes were having an impact. And you know, Evelyn, something interesting about this here is that when the Houthis engage with the United States like that, they get a little bit of cred with mm. their foes that are also opposing the United States. Yes. But, you know, some are saying that the U.S. just had to act because that threat to commercial shipping is just too big. Yeah, quite a few experts that we had on the show said that. Uh, thank you for that input. We have to end our show right here, though. So we'll keep you updated with the latest information. Stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thank you for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.